0: Continue this morning our new sermon series in that part of our Bible that many of us don't know very well. Um, It's called the Minor Prophets. You see that on the screen. And if you were with us last week, we learned that uh, the Minor Prophets, that collection of twelve books, is also actually simply called the Book of the Twelve. Uh, And I want to just review a couple things from last week, and then we will get into our Minor Prophet for today. Um, We noted last week, and you can take a look at the screen, and I think this is a little better than that goofy graphic I had last week, although it is still small, I get that, but uh, what what this is showing you is that the Hebrew Bible is is different than ours. If you go to your Bible and the table of contents, it's laid out differently. The Hebrew Bible follows a division of law, prophets, and then writings, and uh, those letters form the, the word Tanakh and, and so the minor prophets are part of the book of the twelve right there in uh, in that section in the Hebrew Bible called the prophets. And then if you look at the screen again, we saw this last week Our Bible, our Old Testament, is laid out like this. Um, And so um, apologies to those of you that don't like charts and Excel-looking things. It makes you think of school and work. Uh, We'll just look at it for a moment. Uh, If you start on the left, the top row, G, that's Genesis. And if you go all the way to that last E, that's Esther. So that's like a timeline. Genesis all the way to Esther, okay? And then below that, the second row, that's showing you where Job... Likely fits in the Book of Job, even though it comes in our Bible later uh, chronologically. It probably is somewhere in the events of Genesis. And then, if you move to the middle-ish, uh, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the poetic books as we think of them, those fit in the life of David and, and uh, Santa, not Samson, Solomon. Excuse me. So those are right there in First and Second and Samuel and First Kings. And then, that last section in that row, uh, the prophetical books as we think of them, uh, the major prophets and the minor prophets, those aren't happening at the end of, uh, like, the history right before, you know, Jesus comes. Um, They're actually happening in the time of the kings, in what we talked about uh, as the pre-exilic period, so before God's people were taken into exile. Some of them were written during exile, and then some written post-exile, when, when God's people had returned. And so again, just, just keep that in mind. We want to try it each week as we hit one of these books, uh, figure out where specifically in the, the history it falls. And then finally, we noted this last week as well, um, that the differentiation we use, major minor prophets, um, it has nothing to do with uh, importance, it's all about simply the length and so um, Isaiah, for example, as a major prophet, has sixty-six chapters. Uh, Jeremiah has fifty-two, and Ezekiel has forty-eight. Okay, thus they are definitely major in their size. Okay, uh, but uh, as I again mentioned, it's a bit inconsistent because for for us, as in, in our in our Bibles, uh, Daniel is considered a prophetic book uh, and it, a major one, and it has twelve chapters, but uh, And Lamentations, another major prophet for us, that only has five chapters. And yet Hosea, which we looked at briefly last week, and Zechariah, which we'll get to, and they are minor, right? They actually have 14 chapters. So it's somewhat arbitrary, the designation. uh, But again, just just keep in mind, it doesn't mean like minor league, not important, major. It it is important, these books that again stick. uh, And they still stick in my Bible, i be honest with you. Uh, and so this is good uh, over the next uh, 11, 10, 10, 11 weeks to unstick those, those pages. Well, that brings us this morning to Joel. And so if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Joel. Uh, we are moving through them as the order comes in our Bible. So last week was Hosea. Uh, next week, Lord willing, will be Amos. Uh, but today we come to Joel. Now we know very little about Joel. In fact, all that we know comes from the three chapters that make up this minor, this little prophetic book. Um, in Joel, there are references to Judah all throughout chapter 3 and Jerusalem and chapter 2 and 3. Uh, and then you see knowledge of um, the priestly and temple activities from chapter 1 into chapter 2. All of that brings scholars to believe that he was from Judah and possibly Jerusalem, but we don't know exactly. And uh, as well, the one thing we don't know is where in the timeline it fits. So uh, let me get back to uh, this for a minute. Um, the prophetic books, they happen somewhere, right? I said between Second Kings and... Uh, uh, the time of Esther, we, we aren't sure where Joel uh, comes in. Scholars, some think he was pre-exilic. He was writing to God's people before the exile. Um, others think that he wrote uh, post-exile. That's t- that tends to be where I land on it, but it doesn't so much matter um, to to the truths we're going to see. Uh, and again, keep this in mind. God's word is not written to us. Okay, This was... This was the word of the Lord. If you look at Joel 1.1, 1, 1, it says, The word of the Lord, this is God's word, that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And then, as I say, as he speaks uh, to Judah and so forth, it seems to be that this is who he was writing to. So this is God's word to uh, God's covenant people long ago. But it's for us, even Today. Uh, these, these books that stick that are minor uh, that we skip over um, it, it's for us and there's truths uh, that are for us as well um, so as I as I mentioned Joel one one the word of the Lord that came that that is the same way that five of the other minor prophets begin we. we you had Hosea one one start that way. Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah will all speak that way. The word of the Lord. And that simply just reminds us from the beginning that, that this is this is God's message. This is God's message, and He's chosen Joel as the one to bring this message. That the name Joel means Yahweh is God. Memorize that, because it might be that you know someone named Joel. And if you ever meet them again or see them, you could just say to them, hey, do you know that your name means Yahweh is God? Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but that can be a great conversation piece. Joel's name means Yahweh is God. Well, let's get into this book uh, a little bit this morning. Let me kind of give you a couple of dominant themes, and then we will dig into some of the verses and see these themes So scholars note at least two, if not three, dominant themes throughout this little book, three chapters, and let me highlight two of them. Uh, The first is the day of the Lord. This is the theme of Joel. If you read through Joel, um, this comes up over and over again. In fact, that phrase, the exact phrase in Hebrew, day of the Lord, is found five times. And again, if you just think about three chapters, and in fact, chapter three, chapter one has Again, 20 verses, chapter 2 has more than that, Uh, chapter 2 has 32, and then chapter 3 has uh, 21. So in whatever that is, 20 plus 32 plus 31, uh, five times that phrase is used, uh, that's the exact phrase, day of the Lord. And then you have other places where it simply says the day. Lord's Day or things like it, other, what we would call synonyms for the Day of the Lord, um, this is the dominant theme. What is the Day of the Lord? Well, in, in Joel, the Day of the Lord is a day of destruction and threat for Israel. Yes, day of destruction for God's people. Um, Joel 2, verse 1 and verse 11, it's also a day of destruction and threat for the nations, the day of the Lord is spoken of both ways. It's God's judgment on His people. It's God's judgment on the nations. Joel chapter three verse fourteen. The day of the Lord also speaks of again devastation and final, what scholars call final vindication of God and His people. It's connected to God's presence. The day of the Lord speaks of when God would be amongst His people. It's, it speaks of His blessing and ultimately of His salvation. So covers a lot of ground, the day of the Lord. Now, we, as, as Christians, that if, if you just kind of look up at me for a second, uh, from my vantage point, like, history back in time is that way. Or I guess that's your vantage point, and I'm helping you look, like, that way in, in time. Right? So, way back, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus came in, in time and space. Um, and, and that is definitely... Uh, the day of the Lord, and he's going to come again, and the day of the Lord is that day when he will return. And so for us, uh, being Christians, being on this side of the, the cross, uh, we look to the fact that he came, but he's coming again. And and so there's a now and a not yet, right? The day of the Lord is here. Even as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, but then the kingdom will come completely when he returns. So there's these, these tensions that exist, not only related to the kingdom, but even to the day of the Lord. And so it's judgment, but it's also blessing, it's vindication, it's God dealing with his people, it's God dealing with the nations. And so context, context, context always is, main thing to know. In in which instance, what is it speaking to? But again, this is the dominant theme in this little minor prophet. One commentator summarizes this way. In each case, the day of the Lord indicates a time when the presence of the Lord brings judgment and or deliverance and blessing, depending on the circumstances. Therefore, although the day Heralds destruction for the nations, it also functions as a time of salvation for God's people. The Lord remains a refuge amid the chaos of judgment. And listen, that's going to be the case when the day of the Lord comes again. For those of us that are in Christ, our sins have been dealt with. And we welcome the day of the Lord. He's coming back. It's glorious. Glorious second coming. For people who haven't responded to the gospel call, the day of the Lord's not going to be glorious. That's the way the scriptures speak. We'll talk more about this in a few moments. A second key theme in this little book is the theme of repentance. Repentance. Um, Again, we'll look in a moment at some text, but um, because the day of the Lord is coming, God's covenant people are called to repent, to turn away from their idols, from their sin, um, and to cry out with sincerity of heart to God. Um, And again, we'll see this in some passages. Those are two of the main movements uh, throughout. Um, Just briefly, you can take a look if you're interested, and your Bible may have something similar. Um, This is the same wording in a couple of my resources, so I wouldn't be surprised if you have this maybe in a study Bible. Uh, The outline is rather simple. Uh, There's two main parts to the the book of Joel, number one in uh, chapters one, um, chapter one, verse one through kind of the middle of chapter two, verse 17. It's about the judgment against Judah and the day of the Lord. And then that gets subdivided into this this scene of a locust invasion. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And then finally an army invasion, uh, which is the arrival of the day of the Lord. And then kind of the second main point, which comes then, chapter 2, verse 18, through the end, it's about the mercy of the Lord and his judgment against the nations. And again, subdivided mercy, the Lord responds by restoring his people. They they repent and he restores. But then the end, chapter 3, deals with the Lord's judgment against the nations. And ends with this promise of his dwelling with his people. So the book of Joel. Well, let's look for a few minutes uh, at some of the verses. Jump forward just briefly. Chapter 1, one you should be at. But look with me at verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts has eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts has eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locust has eaten eaten. So there's this picture right away, early in the chapter, early in the book about a swarm of of locusts. And it is is a dominant picture, a dominant, you know, uh, thing that God uses to to speak through Joel to his people. I'll just be honest with you. Whenever I I read verse four, I think of this guy on the screen. And
1: uh, so that's Hopper
0: from Ant's and uh, anyway, uh, my, one of my kids was asking me, Dad, what are you going to say when you show that? And I said, you should be in here, and then you know. Um, and so Hopper, and they swore, and uh, now you're going to, and you should go home and watch Ants. It's a fun one. Um, so... It doesn't necessarily indicate here in verse 4 that there's these categories of locusts. It may just be a poetic way that these locusts, some have cut, uh, some are swarming, some are hopping, but, but it's just this intense picture, this swarm, uh, this swarm of you know, kind of large, big, big grasshoppers, if you will. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38, it's on the screen, it says, but think about that, back to your timeline a minute. Deuteronomy... Way back, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? So way back, God had said, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. And so there's a picture of this happening several times in in the the Bible, in the scriptures. Of course, um, many of you may recall Uh, One of the plagues that God sent on the Egyptians during the time of uh, God's people being enslaved in Egypt, uh, during the time of Moses, the eighth plague was a plague of locusts. So that had happened uh, to God's people and to the Egyptians. And then uh, Revelation chapter 9, which is talking about before Jesus returns, uh, before that time, there's a statement there, again, a prefiguring... Uh, that lo- a locust plague would precede judgment um, and uh, the second coming. So uh, this is a theme that finds itself several times in in God's word. Um, now it's interesting. Okay, literally, like did God send swarm of locusts? Well, that that seems to be the way that uh, the, the writing is. That that this this swarm w- was a judgment and it brought devastation. In fact, if we we look, look at verse 15 now, chapter 1. Alas for the day, the day of the Lord. Again, hear that, the day, the day of the Lord. But here it's referring to that locust invasion. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. This here in the context is still speaking of these locusts that came. And it's, it's from the Lord. That's, that's something we don't like to hear. God would do that. God would send something like that. In fact, your Bible may have a little footnote like mine. In verse 15 it says, And as destruction from the Almighty, footnote, it comes. And then down below, destruction in meaning means in, in the Hebrew language. It sounds like the Hebrew word for Almighty. And so uh, it may be, in fact, that there's kind of a play on words. Uh, happening there, something like uh, destruction of the destroyer. So it seems that um, Joel is here describing an actual locust infestation that functioned as a prophetic forerunner of what would come in chapter two. This uh, this imagery of this day of the Lord, his his judgment, uh, this army that would come, uh, and so again. The verbs in chapter 1, scholars tell us they're imperative and past tense and they call for the people to act based on past events, uh, to, to repent and cry out and wail because of what destruction has happened with Logos. but then the verbs in chapter 2, which kind of shift gears to language of an army, they're in the imperfect and imperative form, which means they, they highlight that though judgment is approaching, a return to God is still possible. Right? So before the day of the Lord, before this these locusts came and destroyed, and they're a picture of what else is going to come when, when it is the day of the Lord. So get ready, return, pray, seek me, and so forth. Jump ahead to chapter two now, verse eleven. <clears throat> chapter two, verse eleven. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? I hope you hear, just in me reading it, and hopefully you're seeing it, who's in charge? God is. God is in charge. It's his prerogative. The locus. it's his prerogative to come, bring destruction, judgment, all of that. But as I said, the day of the Lord isn't just those intense things, harsh things, destructive things. Because now let's look at Joel 2, beginning of verse 12. Yet, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not garments hear that this this call to God he, he's he's sent the locusts and they've they've brought destruction and he's judged his people but he's saying return to me and then I love that word rend rend your heart rend your heart not your garments in other words and we don't do that in our day I can't think of last time I've been in such anguish I've ripped my clothes off uh, I have done it for fun when my kids were little. Uh, but, right, we... we the, the picture is there's there's an outward... There's an outward wailing and an outward sign of, you know, repentance. And, and if it goes with the heart, fine. But apparently, we people can be pretty good at having outward signs of repentance. Oh, my bad. Sorry. Okay, I'll say sorry. You know... And it doesn't come from the heart. And God is saying here, uh, rend your heart. Like, so, so if you're going to fast, have it be the overflow, right? We don't fast in order to get something from God. In fact, it's the opposite. God uh, has been gracious and forgiving, and he's maybe brought conviction. So because of what he's done and who he is, we'll fast and we'll seek him. All of, all of the outward acts are to be responses that come from, from a genuine, pure, Heart. Uh, verse 13 goes on, and you'll recognize these, these words. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. This is quoting Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Beautiful, beautiful reminder there. We're going to get to uh, Acts chapter 2 in just a moment in the New Testament. Let me just keep reading, though, uh, right here out of Joel 2. Jump ahead to verse 25. I will restore, and also mean payback, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter. A great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And My people shall never again be put to shame and you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else and my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And now, all of a sudden, maybe you going. i have heard that. Where have I heard that? So the Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost preached these words, that that as, as God gave birth to the church, as the Holy Spirit came, it was the fulfillment of these verses right here, of, of Joel chapter 2. So again, the day of the Lord, there's judgment, there's destruction on God's people, the day of the Lord, it's going to be judgment on the nations, but the day of the Lord is also this invitation to come back, to repent, and in fact, on that day when the church was born, these verses, Peter said, were full of filled in Christ through his sending the Holy Spirit. Let me keep reading. Verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So again, the day of the Lord is, and it's come, the day of the Lord is coming, and there's some things that are still future and so forth, okay? And listen to this, verse 32 and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We've also heard that before, too, because Peter, in chapter 2, said those very words. The Apostle Paul quotes those very words in Romans, chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will saved. This this is how the apostles proclaimed the good news, what God has done in the day of the Lord, what God has done in the good news of Jesus, and that if you call on him, if you repent and turn to him, he in fact fact saves, he forgives. So you see, hopefully, the connection that these themes from Joel, from this prophet of the day of the Lord and of repentance, they, they, they come together in this climactic way at the day of Pentecost. Because the day of the Lord has come, the church is born, and his presence is now with his people in the spirit. As people then hear Peter and repent. And So God doesn't just universally give this. No. Through you and I, we proclaim this message. Whether it's from a platform like this or in conversation at home with our kids or over coffee with neighbors and coworkers. Repent to God. He longs to save. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther, I mention this often, um, it's from the 95 Thesis, and so we might remember that in 1517, Martin Luther probably, at that point, doesn't fully understand the Gospel, but he's been studying the Word of God, and he's fed up with the abuses that have been happening in the church these, these peddlers of God's forgiveness pay some money and, and get some time off purgatory, pay some more money and you can get your grandma out of purgatory. And he's, he's fed up with it. And so he wants to have a debate. He wants to have a discussion. So on Reformation Day, not Halloween, Reformation Day, October 31, 1517, he nails 95 theses, things he wants to talk about, to the church door in Wittenberg. It's like a community bulletin board. And the first one, is that the Christian life is to be repentance. Like, that is to be our our life. And so we repent at some point, the first time when when God opens our eyes and we see that he is calling us to himself and he's inviting us to call on him and be saved and we repent and we say, God, forgive me, I need you. And then we continue to live that way. At least we should. Christian's life is one of daily, one of daily coming back as we are prone to wander, prone to wander. Timothy Whitmer, he's a writer and scholar, he says this, Both the judgment and the promise remind us of our desperate need for God's help. The judgment that our sins deserve is far worse than a plague of locusts promise of the Spirit reminds us that the help we need is nothing less than the supernatural and it's through the ministry of Jesus the requirements of judgment and of supernatural provision have both been met. So just remember for a minute the the essence of the gospel message. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 For our sake He, referring to God, made Him, referring to Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A great exchange. And then 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by his wounds you have been healed. So Jesus himself took on if you will, the plague. It's a plague of judgment. So we don't have to worry any longer about the day of the Lord and the judgment because if we're in Christ, Jesus took it. And then, recall with me, back into the Gospel of John. Jesus promised John fourteen sixteen, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That's the Holy Spirit. So now Jesus dealt with our sins. He sent the Holy Spirit, so God's presence is in us. So we get to live this life of having God's judgment dealt with. We get the very presence of God, and we can continuously repent and come back. I want to say one thing, going back into Joel 2 for a moment. Yeah, chapter 2, verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So how do we claim that verse? Well, again, we we didn't literally have swarming locusts sent to us as judgment. That, That happened to God's covenant people before Christ. But again, if locusts are a judgment and a picture of of God's God's control, I tried to show you in each of the times, several times, that it's mentioned. It's God who sends the locusts. It's God's judgment. It's God bringing this destruction for for a purpose, ultimately, so that people would, would turn to him. So do we get to claim this? Do we get to pray this? God, restore to me, to us, the years that the locusts have eaten. Daniel and I were talking about this briefly this morning. I think it's not unlike a verse like um, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God knows the plans he has for us. Yes, uh, he does. Uh, the verse goes on, and we've talked about this verse in years past. Um, most translations that we know say plans to prosper you, and not to harm you. Uh, the word prosper is the word shalom plans to shalom. And so that is not a promise to us directly. That was a promise to God's people uh, in exile and, and coming back out of their Babylonian captivity. Um, but we can apply it through the gospel. This is what the Apostle Paul says, that in Christ, all of God's promises are yes. So how does this verse then be our yes in Christ? Well, life has consequences, sadly. We know that. And um, if we figuratively think about our sin and, and maybe what's happened and, and how maybe if we picture it as like what locusts have destroyed and now it's you know it's sort of dead, like we, we understand that that's a consequence of, of choices. And how how does God restore? Is he gonna just like all of a sudden cause us to be prosperous and wealthy? Maybe. But this is not a promise to, to take God at his word. Like, God, you promised to restore, to pay back. Unless we, we, we stop and say, well, I do know in Christ uh, I, I am forgiven. And in Christ I am restored. In Christ I am one now with God. I am in peace with God. Right? We learn in, in Romans, through the gospel, through what he's done, through being justified, we are at peace. That's a restoration of It may be that on this earth, there's consequences that that follow us and even maybe go before us. But one day, he will return. And one day when he comes, then yes, there will be a full restoration. Because we read this verse, and I've heard this verse a lot over the years, a verse prayed for, and I think it's okay to pray it. God, would you restore? God, I messed up. I screwed up. Uh, You know, I mean, I have, but I don't want to literally write this moment. I'm just saying, like, I'm aware of my stuff, my sin and the consequences, and, and you may be too, and, and so we, we can go, God, would you restore? Like my sin, my, my bad choices have brought devastation. Would you restore to me? And God says, I will one day for sure. You are restored in Christ. And then we wait. And it might be that if He doesn't on this earth, it's Tim saying no. Because what you've lived through, it's going to point
1: you to me, your continual need for me. It's going to
0: point you to point others to me and, and tell others that we... we well, again, there's consequences. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul says, like this picture of yeast, like it spreads. Um, we reap what we sow, and that's life. But that doesn't mean God's not spiritually restored, us so one day won't. So keep that in mind. Joel a wonderful little minor prophet book reminding us of the day of the Lord, reminding us of call to repent. And when we do repent, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So would you stand? And I want to pray, and we're going to sing one final song. But I want to just throw this out like Peter on Pentecost. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you have yet to call on him, be your forgiver, to be the one that you're trusting in, not your righteousness, not your good life, not the good things you've done, not not hoping that your good outweighs the bad, right, like it's going to be some scale at the end of life, and you've done more good. No, call on the Lord, and he'll save you, and I invite you to do that, and if you do that, come tell me, and I want to pray with you, and, um, and if you're watching online, today's the day for you to call on the Lord, send a note, let us know, we want to Hope you experience your first steps as a Christian, as someone who God has saved. And for the rest of us, call on him today. You need to confess something you did this morning. Call on him. Repent. Ask for him to forgive you. Do it again in an hour, because you'll need to again in an hour. And later today and this week, we see all these things in Joel, culminating with his presence in the Holy Spirit. So let's pray now. Father, Thank you for this little book. Thank you for the day of the Lord. It's scary on the one hand, and yet for those of us in Christ, now we await your return. Thank you for the invite from you over and over again. Oh God, who is slow to anchor and abounding in steadfast love, you want us to repent, return to you again and again and again. So may we, your people, do that, and Lord, now again. Please draw some to you for the first time to call on to you, call out to you, be saved. I pray you would. In the beautiful, wonderful.